Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Does your family have a secret recipe? You know, maybe it's that one salad or dessert or uh, that has to be at every holiday occasion. Maybe it's your family has the secret sauce for the best barbecue in Lake County, Indiana. Uh, maybe your wife's chocolate chip cookies are famous in three states. I don't know. But there's that one recipe that we all seem to have. Uh, how do they make it? And um, why is it so good? You know, speaking of uh, great recipes, we're actually having a pie baking contest. Now, that's, that's a throwback, isn't it? We're going to have, it's not even the fair, but it's going to be here on June the 5th, our Sunday evening service, the legacy of a father. Uh, one, we're going to have a time of fellowship afterwards, and it's going to be a pie fellowship. If you would like to bake a pie in our contest, all you have to do is reach out to the office, or there's a link in the emails that we're sending out, and you can be, maybe you have, you know, a famous pie that's in your family and that you can make it. There's just something about those recipes. But, you know, it's kind of interesting because they all have the same basic ingredients. You know, there's only so many things you can cook with, although they seem to come up with new ones all the time. You know, flour, sugar, butter. But when there's like this secret combination of ingredients, right, it just turns out extra good. And there's details about that are like in that recipe, like, you know, how you mix it, in what order, uh, how long you bake it, at what temperature. One of our family secret recipes are my grandmother's biscuits. And my grandmother passed away 25 years ago. <laughs> and, and we felt basically the recipe was lost. No one in our family could replicate. I did it. About five years ago, I, I cracked the code. And I come up with these biscuits, and they are just like Grandma's famous biscuits. And do you know what the secret was? You have to bake them. Are you ready for this? Now, some of you ladies, you know where I'm going. You have to bake them at 500 degrees. 500 degrees. Who would have ever thought of that? Most ovens will only go up to 500 degrees. That's what you have to do and to get them to turn out right. So, you know, there's lots of details that go into all of that. But what if there was a secret recipe to having meaningful relationships or even a good marriage? Wouldn't you want to know that? What if it wasn't a secret at all? This morning, we're going to look together at God's recipe for a good marriage. And this is part of our series of messages on God's blueprint for the home. You know, and a recipe is a lot like a blueprint because it kind of guides you and it tells you what to do when and how. And it's kind of like a blueprint or recipe or instructions. We're going to look at this together and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God's recipe for a good marriage. Now, uh, some of you are thinking, you know, Pastor Phil, this is a little late for me. You know, I've, I've been married... Uh, 50 years or more, or my spouse has already passed away. Well, you, you be patient with me because there's something here for all of us. And I know that this will be an encouragement. Really, at the end of the day, this recipe applies to all relationships. In our family or in general, in the church, in our friendships, really these have a lot of overlap. 
And, you know, the good thing about this is in order to have a satisfying, meaningful marriage, it doesn't have to be perfect. Okay, it doesn't have to be now. I don't know about pies, but as far as marriages go, it doesn't have to be a blue ribbon, the best one in the whole county in order for it to be good and satisfying and meaningful. Now, that should be an encouragement to all of us. And, um, you know, I think of any young people or students in the room, uh, you can begin learning now because it's very likely that one day you will be married. You can begin learning now. Uh, how to relate well uh, to your future spouse, your own family one day, and you can be prepare your future self today by, by practicing these secrets or these ingredients of how to relate in a healthy, positive way right where you are with your siblings or with your parents. And you can be laying a foundation for something uh, good in your own family one day as you move forward and grow. So again, this has application all across the board. We're going to read here in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at two passages. One is in Genesis 1, the other is in Genesis 2. Now, if, I don't know how many of you, some of you are, you know, you've noticed a lot of details. I put a typo in our church email on Friday because I said read Genesis chapter 3. But that's not correct. It's Genesis chapter 2. Now, I would encourage you to, um, to use, to follow along in your Bible. And you can look, you can take the Bible. There's a Bible in the book rack in front of you. And if, if you want to come to Genesis chapter 1, uh, where we're going to be, all you have to do is turn to page, are you ready for this? 2. Page 2. Okay, that's where we're going to be in, <laughs> in this Bible. Okay, we're going to be on page 2. So uh, you follow along and look along with me there in your Bible. We start in verse uh, 26 of Genesis chapter 1, and here God's word says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And the man there is a general term. Let's make humankind, human beings, in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Sounds kind of creepy to me. Uh, verse 27, not really. Verse 27, so God created man, or humankind, or human beings, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we are looking for sure at the blueprint uh, of God for we're looking at the very foundations of not just family, but civilization as we know it. That's what we're seeing here. You, you can, these are ancient words that go back to the very beginning of humankind, and you cannot uh, twist or, you know, kind of um, take out these, or dismiss these ideas lightly. This is ancient wisdom that goes to the very core of what it means to be human beings in a civilized society. And one of the things that we notice here is that there is intrinsic dignity in every human being. Because he said that we're all made in the image of God. Now that means several things, but one of the things is, is that every single human being, not the animal kingdom, but every human being carries within them a spark of the divine. 
there is a divine thumbprint on every single human soul that makes, that indeed makes every single person worthy of respect. They have innate dignity. And this applies to marriage and to all human relationships because you're relating to other humans. Male and female, every single one is worthy of respect and, and honor to be treated fairly, to be heard, to be listened to, to be understood, to express themselves. All of this is foundational for relationships, for human civilization. And you could go different directions, applications and implications of this image of God stamped in every soul. I mean, certainly this would speak into our uh, position and belief against abortion because you're, you're, you're killing a human being. You're not respecting the image of God in them. This would speak to the, the, uh, the rise in race, racism going on in our world today. We think of the tragic uh, mass shooting just a week or so ago out in Buffalo, so this idea of respecting our fellow human beings, whether they're in the womb or they uh, have a different ethnicity than we do or they're a different gender than we are or they're a different age than we are or whatever the case, that doesn't matter. We should treat one another with respect and care and concern and in a right way. This is the, founda this is the foundation of Christian ethics something that we should all carry very much in our homes and in our hearts. So the first thing, though, specifically speaking of mar the marriage relationship, the first thing that we see here, number one, the first ingredient is that marriage is an institution given and blessed by God from the beginning. It's not a human invention. It's not a societal norm. It is an institution given and blessed by God from the beginning. Verse 26 tells us God made male and female. He put them together in this relationship, and it says God blessed them. So this blessing was on them as a couple. This is, you could say it was a marriage blessing. And, and you know, I mean, a, there is this idea of a Christian marriage. And what I am, uh, a Christian marriage ceremony, that the, this is the, you know, the fact that it's not just a man and woman committing their lives to each other, but you're doing it in the presence of God, that there is this third party. God himself is witness to this act. He is blessing this act. He is involved in it, and he is helping it to be successful into the future. And um, so he blessed them, and he said, be fruit, you know, the, the word blessing here, uh, it really means a thing, a blessing, is something that is conducive to happiness and welfare. And, and I'm saying this, that uh, God's plan and his blueprint is that they would be blessed, that they would, they would have happiness and welfare. Now, that's God's original design for his creatures. And, and uh, to experience prosperity and peace and fulfillment. Why is it then that so many times marriage doesn't have that or it doesn't 
it doesn't become that. It becomes a source of, of misery and tragedy and heartache. Obviously, we know the answer because in God's perfect world, in Genesis 1, uh, that's what God established. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, sin entered into the picture, entered into the heart of man. And so people are now innately selfish and uh, self-centered and sinful. And so this corrupts relationships. And the, and the, the interesting thing, the closer people get to each other, the more conflict there can be left to themselves. And this is why we need not just God in the beginning establishing marriage, but we need the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament redeeming marriage and redeeming hearts and lives. And so when we, we, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to have a good and successful marriage. We need our hearts to be changed from the inside out. And the wonderful thing about the gospel is that fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, to provide for us the gift of eternal life. But there's more to the gospel than just eternal life, isn't there? He gives us a changed heart. And so through the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ working in our life, it makes us humble. It makes us a little more agreeable. It makes us a little bit easier to get along with. Hello? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if the gospel doesn't produce that work in your life, then you have to step back and ask the question, do I have the gospel? You know, because uh, there's a lot of us that we would be very hard to live with if it wasn't for Jesus. But because we have Jesus, it shouldn't be so hard to live with us. So, it, it, you know... Kind of like, uh, like John the Baptist said it better than I can. He said, I must decrease and he must increase. And I, I think the, the level of conflict and tension and problems in our marriage is because maybe I'm not decreasing enough and Christ isn't increasing enough. And that's the beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Because marriage is not automatically a blessing, at least not anymore. We need Jesus Christ in it as well. So that's the first ingredient. Marriage is an institution given by God and blessed by God from the beginning. And, and, and it is between, this is the second ingredient, it is between a male and a female. Now that, that may not, unfortunately, that's not as straightforward as we might assume or like to think. One man and one woman. Uh, you know, the whole idea of polygamy doesn't even fit in Genesis 1 because there was only one woman and one man, right? So from the beginning, it was that idea. So there's, there's when, you, when you understand God's blueprint, and obviously what I am presenting today is a Christian biblical view of marriage, which is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then that's where you want to go with it. But I'm sure there are many people that would disagree with a lot of what I'm saying that don't regard the Bible as God's word or their blueprint in life. But because we do, we can say things like between a male and a female, a man and a woman. So this kind of, um, this rules out cohabitation or living together before you're married. 
that, that's not blessed by God in the preceding verse that we saw. That's not God's blueprint. It, it also leaves out polygamy or uh, polyamorous relationships. That's not a man and a woman. It would eliminate same-sex marriage. It would eliminate open marriages and a lot of other things that do not fit. They're not part of the recipe. And you, and you can really kind of ruin the recipe if you're not really following it carefully. These are not things that a Christian would uh, want to participate in or agree to. Someone says, well, you know, that sounds kind of narrow, Pastor Phil. Well, on the one hand, I guess by today's standards, you could call what I'm saying narrow. Jesus was rather narrow sometimes, wasn't he? As a matter of fact, he literally said, narrow is the way. I mean, those were literally his words. Narrow is the way. So if you and I faithfully follow Jesus and we make him Lord and boss of our life, then sooner or later, some people are going to consider us narrow. There's just no way around that. They're not going to understand. And you're, you're not even judging them. You're not really like, accusing them you're just trying to live your life according to god's word but just that simple act uh, they're going to think you're too narrow but that's okay that's okay what does the saying go you want to live for an audience of one ultimately now that doesn't mean that you're going to be disagreeable doesn't mean that um you're going to uh you know, be mean-spirited about it. That's the wonderful thing about Jesus. He, he gives us the perfect balance and the perfect example when it says that Jesus was full of truth and grace. It wasn't just truth. You know, the Bible says that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So it wasn't just truth, as important as that is. It was truth and grace. And he was full of, tr full of truth and full of grace. That's wh what we should strive for as Christians. Uh, someone said it this way. If, G if people don't like you because of Jesus, that's okay. If people don't like Jesus because of you, that's not okay. And that's the difference. So we've seen two ingredients so far. First, that marriage is blessed by God from the beginning, that it is a man and a woman in a monogamous covenant relationship. And then we see number three, we see the purpose of marriage is partnership in life. We see that here when it says that God gave them an assignment. Uh, they were to subdue the earth. They were to... Uh, fill the earth. They were to go out into this world full of resources and the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and all of that, and they were to carve out a living together. That somehow, on some level, that two heads are better than one. And that by being partners together in this great endeavor called life, they were going to be much better off. And so they were partners in life. And so marriage is a commitment to go through life together and to complete your mission. It's based upon this idea of being partners, that you are 
uh, you have mutual respect and admiration for each other, and you plan together, and you set goals together, and you support each other, and you work together. This is what carries us through years and years of marriage. The most stable marriages are those where the couple works together as a team and they see things from each other's perspective and consider each other's feelings and seek to find common ground. You see, uh, the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And, and so is the, a man's countenance to his friend. And we're going to see in a minute, the best friend you could ever have is your spouse. And so you're sharpening each other. You're going to be better because of that other person. That's the idea. And, and the key to a good marriage is compromise. Seeking common ground and moving forward together. And we have a philosophy here in our church. And, and I, I kind of pulled it in from my marriage. We lead by consensus. I, I, I'm a pastor. I'm not a dictator. Right? And... and, and uh, and you're a husband. You're not a dictator. Well, you know what a husband, you know what the word husband, you know where that word comes from? You ever heard of the word animal husbandry, right? A husband is one that cares for, and a pastor is one that cares for. And you know the difference between um, a pastor leads sheep, right? Uh, and I, I've, you know, you've probably seen sheep before. The pastor, the shepherd, goes out in front of the sheep, and they come behind. And he's caring for them. And so um, in, in our work together as partners in life, we're, you're caring for one another, and there's a mutual respect and a mutual consideration. Your spouse is your partner, and you want to allow your partner to influence you in making important decisions in your life and in your home and with your kids and so on. So you have to work that out together. It's not my way or the highway. That is not the approach at all. And um, I have a feeling that, you know, God gave you your spouse for a reason. And, and if we listen to one another and we truly listen and allow what they're saying to impact us and influence us, most of, if they care about us and they care about our family and our marriage, that's going to work out well when you do that mutually and you come to mutual decisions. And then number four, let's move forward here quickly. Uh, the, sec the fourth ingredient is not just that you are partners together in life, but it often includes the having and the raising of children. Now, I'm not going to really talk about this point because I, I shared a whole message on it last week. But this is um, often one of the ingredients in marriage. Not always, but many times it is. And um, there are more ingredients that I want, to see, I want you to see before we close out our time. So we're going to move forward now to Genesis chapter 2. We see another foundational part of God's blueprint for the home beginning in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2. So we've seen four ingredients so far. We're going to look at I think about one or two more, and then we'll uh, wrap up our time here together, beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20. And here God's word says, oh, if you're, um, 
If you're following along in the back Black Pew Bible, this is on page three. Did you get that? Three. Okay, <laughs> I'm just checking. <laughs> Verse 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, you, wait a minute. Didn't he make male and female over there in Genesis 1? Yes. Genesis 2 is not like, he's not repeating, you know. He, 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 he's expanding. He's going back and he's giving the same account, but he's giving an expanded version. He's filling in a lot of details. And so here we're finding out that Adam and Eve were made, uh, created by God, but not in the same moment of time. There, there's some time went by. And I think this was very intentional on God's part. How long was Adam alone? We don't, we don't really know. It was, he was alone long enough to, uh, he was long, alone long enough to feel lonely. He said, there is not a help me comparable to me. There's no one here in all of this crowd of animals. There's no one like me. There's no one for me. And, and he, so he knew that he was lonely and it didn't feel real good. Because God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So he was alone long enough to recognize it and to recognize that it was not a good situation. Okay. And, and, but then thirdly, this is something I think is important. We also see that Adam, even though he was alone, he still had productive work that God had given him to do. God said, Adam... Right now, what I want you to do, your task is to name every animal here. Now, he, so he was immediately, he was engaging with God's creation in a productive and meaningful way. That would be the coolest job ever. Hippopotamus, elephant, platypus. I mean, come on, <laughs> that's really cool. He got to do all of that, even though he was alone. So I, I think... Here, you know, I said there's something in this message for everyone. Sometimes when we're alone, we, f we feel like, oh, I'm alone. I can't do anything. That's not true. There is productive work for you that God has for you to do in your singleness. You say, well, yeah, but I'm kind of more like Adam. Like being, being alone is kind of crummy. Well, I mean, we're human beings. We were created for, for close relationships. So, yeah. Uh, many times in life, seasons of life, we have to confront and deal with loneliness. And, and you can address that in healthy ways and, and productive ways, or you can address it in unhealthy, destructive ways. But it is something that we, we often have to face in life. Uh, you know, this is, um, you know, I thank God for a ministry in our church like Grief Share, where people who have lost a significant other, and many times find themselves alone for the first time in decades. They're alone, but they're not alone. Because there are friends, and there are people who understand how they feel, and there are people that can surround them and support them, and there is a church family that cares about them. And so while you're navigating that, just remember this. God still has productive work for you to do, just like he did for Adam. So that we need to move forward here. And um, we see in verse 21 that God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took out one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in, the, in its place. And, you know, 
I'm really tempted to tell a joke here, but I better not. We don't have time, and you wouldn't laugh anyway. God said to Adam, he said, Adam, I can give you the most perfect spouse. You know, she's like off the charts on every area. She's like just perfect. And he said, but what's it going to cost me? And he said, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> uh, told you I was going to skip it. Verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man. When Adam saw Eve and all of her stunning beauty, he said, whoa, man. So she was called woman from that point forward. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you know how I know that God in this passage is not recount, just recounting history, but rather he is laying foundational principles for, for human existence? I know that because in verse uh, 22, 24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. What father and mother was Adam leaving? He wasn't. What, what God is laying down here is for all of time and for all people. And, and, and this is, we come to the fifth ingredient here, and I need to hurry. The fifth ingredient in this, the secret to a good marriage, doesn't have to be a perfect marriage, but a good marriage, is compa close companionship and deep friendship. Now, this is a little bit different than partnership. They're a little bit related, but it's different because this is just the idea of knowing this person and enjoying this person. And, and happy, successful marriages are based upon deep friendships. Couples who share mutual respect and enjoy each other's company are more likely to have a satisfying marriage uh, and healthier lives in general. And, and so uh, this is why we have things like a date night where, uh, you know, someone said it this way, once a day, once a day, you should have a time in your schedule where you can sit down with your spouse and just kind of debrief the day. May maybe if you do it in the morning, you'd like talk about the day you're going to have. If you find time to do it in the evening, you talk about the day that you did have. And all you do is just tell them what you did that day and how you felt about what you did that day. I did this and this and this, and it felt terrible. This didn't work. That was frustrating. Or I did this and this and this, and you know what? I really was glad it worked out, and I'm so thankful. And you tell them all you have to do. This isn't rocket science, folks, okay? All you have to do is sit down for 20, 30 minutes, 30, 15 minutes each, that's 30 minutes, tell your spouse, all you have to do is just kind of, I don't know if this is crude, regurgitate your day, right? Just tell them what you did that day and how you felt about what you did. And then, and they listen intently and pay attention, and then you do the opposite every day. And because we're not perfect, we don't do it every day, but you definitely do not want to skip. You want to do it at least 
four times a week, any less than that, and you're not being friends. You're not really good friends because good friends tell their friends about their day. It's just part of the human bonding experience in a close relationship. You don't allow days and days and days to be so busy, so filled, so distracted that you're not sitting down over a cup of coffee or whatever it is. But then once a week, uh, once a week, they say that every couple needs close connection 90 minutes a week. That's a date night. That's where you go out. And, uh, you know, this debriefing thing, I said, that could be a walk around the block. That could just be sitting at the t- dining room table and having a, something to drink or a piece of pie or whatever. But once a week, you need to go on a date night where you just go out and you're just with each other and you're concentrating each other. And, you're, and that's a part of being friends, you know. Now, you know you've been married a while. You know, when you get, you know, when you're young, you go out to, like, Woo House, you know. Have you been to Woo House? You need to take your spouse to the, to the Woo House. It's, it's a really cool restaurant out of Maryville. Uh, Sarah and I went there the other night, but we're not young. But you know, you know how you know, you've been married a while? When your date night is going to Costco and getting a hot dog. <laughs> your date night is going shopping together, right? Can anybody relate to what I'm just said? <laughs> yeah. But if you're younger, you're a little more, you go to Woo House and then you go to Costco. <laughs> And then once a year, at least once a year, travel together, just the two of you. And so you deepen your emotional connection as friends. And, and this isn't just true in marriage, although that's really what we're emphasizing here, but it's true in your family, going on vacation together as a family. I, I saw pictures on Instagram of family in our church, and they're like out at the Grand Canyon. I think that's so awesome. We're getting ready to go to California. I've never been to California in my life. I'm going to the Sequoia National Forest. I've dreamed of it since I was 10 years old. And Lord willing, we're going to be there in about a month or so. So that's exciting as a family, as a church family, being friends. That's what life groups are all about in our Bible classes where you, you develop strong friendships. So this is a part of our human experience, but in a good marriage that's your best friend, and you work at it. You invest in it. And, um, and really, uh, there's, um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes, you know, this, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of presenting an ideal, right? I'm not, this isn't our, everybody's reality all the time, right? I think we all, if you've been married very long, you know that you don't always measure up to this ideal. But this is God's recipe, And the closer you get to the recipe, the better you're going to like the taste of the results. The further you get from the recipe, it's just something's off here. It's not really that satisfying. So we shoot for the ideal. There was a young man, uh, this is a true story, young man that grew up in a severely dysfunctional, abusive home. His home was so bad when he was about, I don't know if it was 15 or 16 years old, he turned himself in to CPS. He reported his family situation because he had to get out. It was like destroying him. And he was attuned enough to recognize that as a, ma- as a young man. They did take him out of his home because it was horrific. And they placed him in a home across town, a foster home with Christian 
a Christian couple. He said it totally changed his life. He had never seen a family sit down to a meal together at the table, a family meal. He had never seen any family anywhere ever interact without yelling and screaming and and, uh, conflict. He had never seen a normal, I don't know if normal is the right word, he had never seen a typical family interact in a healthy, good way. He had never seen it in his entire life in his 15 years. When he saw it, it gave him hope. When he saw it, it gave him a vision. When he saw it, it totally changed his life. To this day, he never went back to that way of living before. And that's the value of having a recipe or an ideal or a model. And that's something that I want to say to every every retired couple in this room. How many of you have been married 40 years or more? Raise your hand. And even if your spouse is passed, you were married. How many of you were married or are married 50 years or more? Raise your hand. Look, look around the room, everybody. Keep your hand up. 50 years or more. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go out there, you know, 60 years or more. That's a significant number. Look around. So you are our ideal. You say, well, no, don't put me up as an example. I know your marriage doesn't have to be perfect to be good. But, the, I, but holding up an example of what we saw in Genesis 1 a man and a woman blessed by God for life. Doesn't mean it's always easy. But this is the ideal that we're all striving for. And this is what we see here in this passage. I'm out of time, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to come back next week if you want to. Ryan, you gotta come back next week. You're gonna get number six. I don't know. Let's bow together for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The very first step, we, we cannot do this on our own. You say, well, my marriage is not, not a lot of that. It's not meaningful and, or satisfying or happy. We need Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. In our flesh, we will mess it up nine times out of ten. Maybe there's someone here today and you need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Oh, I would invite you to do that today. Not only because he died on the cross in our place for our sins and he rose again and he is alive today. He is the Savior of the world. Not only can he grant you the gift of eternal life, but he can also transform your heart. And, and change you from the inside out. And that's what we all desperately need to enhance our personal relationships at every level. We need the grace of God. We need the Holy Spirit reining us in, giving us his fruit and taking away the works of our flesh. That's something only God can do in us. Would you receive him today? Would you surrender to him in a new way.
rededicate yourself to living your marriage in the spirit and not in the flesh. Our Father God, we thank you today for so many hands that were raised that have been married for many decades. And Lord, we, we understand that that has not all been easy or rosy, but by your grace, you have allowed us to move forward on some level in positive ways for the blessing of ourselves and our families. We thank you for that. And, and we pray for all of our young people. We pray, Father, that, that they would see your recipe, your blueprint as their ideal to live it out, to apply it to their lives. Father, we pray for their blessing, that you would guard over them and protect them, that you would guide them in your will, that your grace would work profoundly in their hearts, to have a spirit of, of partnership in, in working together, that they would have a spirit of friendship and caring for one another deeply. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.